everybody, welcome to episode 26 of the Hey Kerwin Show. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Hey Kerwin, where you have the questions and I give the answers. God, it feels like it's taken for fucking ever to get to episode 26. Timmy, what are the people asking? What are the questions of the day? Well, Rockwell Naturopath Rockwell. asks, how do we deal with death and minimize mourning? Ooh, how do we deal with death and minimize mourning? Uh, there's a counterbalance there. How we deal with death, death is one thing, and how we minimize mourning. Yeah, they're two, almost two completely different but similar things. First of all, uh, I think grief needs to be experienced. Grief is something that is required psychologically, uh, metaphysically, it's energetically, it's, it's, it's a transition of energy, it's a transition of emotions that come up and, and have to be released from the body. And I think any time where we try to suppress grief, when we try to suppress um, you know, the morning, like oftentimes that, 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 that grief, that morning gets trapped in our body and it can oftentimes, you know, be then expressed like, cause whatever we repress gets expressed and often in unhealthy ways. And so I think grief is one of those important, um, experiences where we have to express it because the more we express grief, the more it, it is relieved from us. It leaves us. But the more we hang on to grief, the more we recycle that information. And it is information. It's energy. Energy contains information. And the more we recycle those emotions and those feelings and that energy. So first and foremost, uh, you know, and I've experienced an, un, an, un, an unusual, I almost used to say an unhealthy amount of death, but I don't, look, it is what it is. But I've, I've experienced an unusual amount of death. But one of the things that I've learned is the importance of grieving. You've got to grieve. Uh, but how we minimize uh, or deal with death better, which in, an, in itself can help us minimize the grieving process because if you allow yourself to express fully, you're not gonna be recycling these emotions and these energies and this information, which is gonna, in many cases, probably extend the grieving process. You know, it's much like uh, I know whenever I'm, when, when I was going through, whenever I go through any sort of pain, and this might sound weird, but you know, every now and then, Timmy, I actually still cry. It's rare, but when I do, I really, I, I like, I, there's nothing better than, like, have you ever, would you agree that there's nothing better than a good sob? Ooh. It's just, it's, no, no, it's, there's so much relief that comes from it. And I think, you know, sometimes when we hold emotion back, you know, we don't get that feeling of complete relief, like relieving ourselves of that energy. Uh, but the second thing that I do to, 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 that minimizes death, but also helps us deal with death or minimizes the grieving process. We can't minimize death. Um, minimizes the grieving process, but it also enables us to deal with death better, is actually start to balance, it's a counterbalance. Because oftentimes when we experience death, we focus on the loss. And the loss is what in many cases recycles the, the feelings and the energies and the repressed grief that we, we feel for ourselves. But on the grief bit a little bit more, like I think it's really important that people understand you have to grieve. It is a really healthy part of the process. You must grieve, and if you don't, by not grieving, you're actually extending the grieving process because you won't be fully transitioning into that next phase that's required energetically, emotionally, and also psychologically as well. But to minimize that experience and to maximize uh, the experience of, of death, to see the, the counterbalance, we've got to really look at both sides because when we, when we experience loss and we focus on the loss, that's what we'll experience. We'll experience the loss, you know, the loss of personality traits, the loss of energy, the loss of companionship, the loss of whatever we were getting you know, in those situations. But it's when we counterbalance that by saying, okay, well, what were the benefits you know, of this person being in my life? What am I grateful for, for this person being in my life? Like, what were all the gifts that I received? Like, you literally start to go through and count your blessings because I think oftentimes when you look at someone who has gone, all you experience is a loss of what they brought. Whereas when you actually focus on what they brought, you start to realize, well, hang on, you know, I didn't lose anything. I actually gained so much by actually having this person in my life. Uh, and so for me, you know, and by the way, I, I, it's still a work in process, pr process. Like it's always proximity. And to me, death is that game of proximity. The closer the proximity to you, 
uh, the closer the proximity to nerve and to emotion, uh, the more grief that will come up and the harder it will be to counterbalance the experience when it, when it does you know, when it does transpire. But what I will tell you as someone who's experienced an awful and an unusual amount of death, that the more you allow the grieving process, the easier it is for you to transition quickly. Um, and again, grief has its own path. Grief has its own timeline. You're never going to be able to go, well, I'll be finished in two days. Yeah, good luck with that. But also counterbalancing that when you lose the individual, when you lose the energy, when you lose those traits, when you lose that energy that they brought to the situation, start asking, what did I gain from having them in my life? And really start focusing on counting the blessings of gain, counting the blessings of benefit, counting the blessings of what you got. But also start looking at the benefits of what do I, how do I now view others as a result of this loss? Because one of the things that I've learned by losing others and almost losing my own life is you become a lot more present. Like one of the greatest benefits of death is present. It makes you more conscious that death is an outcome. And that's guaranteed. Like n none of us are getting out of this alive, Timmy. None of us. And you know, one of the things we need to realize is we are all going to die. Everyone dies. And we, what we do, the only thing we don't know is when. You know, for some of us, it could be today. For some of us, it could be tomorrow. For some of us, it might not be for another 10 or 20 years, maybe 50 years or even 70, 80 years, depending on where you're on your journey. But what I do know is this, death is guaranteed. But when you start to experience death and mortality around you, it does make you more grateful for the time that you have. It makes you more grateful for the time that you have, but also makes you more grateful for the time that you have with others. And to me, that's one of the gifts of death. And I think one of the most incredible gifts of death is enabling us to brace, embrace life. You know, and I think, uh, if you're really interested, you can go and read the Tibetan book of Living and Dying, but it really talks about embracing death as a concept so that we can truly be free. Because a lot of people live in this constant state or, or, or you know, fleeting states of fear because they're afraid they're going to hurt themselves. They're afraid they're going to get hurt. They're afraid in some cases at an extreme level, they're going to die. Whereas if you can, can confront and embrace the fact that you are going to get hurt, you are going to feel pain, you are going to die, then you start to live a little bit more energetically. You start to live a little bit more outwardly and you start to really experience everything that life has to offer. Because most people tiptoe their life way through life you know trying to get to death safely and to me it's like fuck I want to like when I get to death I want to be skidding in sideways you know I want I want to be banged up I want to be making sure that I've, you know, I've 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 redlined this puppy to its limit and really lived and had the, the greatest experience that I can so uh, yeah hopefully that helps but I think they're both one and the same the more gifts that you can get from the death and the experience of death the shorter the grieving process will be, but the grieving process is required uh, in order for the energy to be transmuted uh, from the emotions that comes up you know, as a result of that, that connection being uh, transformed. It's a transmutation. It's alchemy. Greatest form of alchemy is death. Shirley S. Plumley on Facebook asks, Hey Shirley. My grandson has ADHD. He has high and low days. He is smart, but not using it. How do I help him? How do you help? So how do you help anyone with ADHD? Is first of all, don't make them feel like that they've got a. Don't make them feel like that they're that they have a problem. You know, I think one of the challenges that I had when I um, was younger is a lot of people made me feel like um, that there was something wrong with me. Now, the, the word learning disabled wasn't used a lot, but it was the way that I was treated, the way that I, you know, I was always failing things, the way that I was expected to succeed when I thought all I was going to do was fail. And every time I failed, like to me, it was like, well, I failed again. But it was almost like it was a surprise to everybody else where it was a, such a constant theme in my life. For me, one of the greatest things that I've learned as a, as, as a beautiful consequence of ADHD is it actually creates and gives me a hypersensitivity to boredom, which means I get sensitive to the things that make me bored, the, the things that bore me. Uh, so if there's something that bores me, it's 10 times more likely to switch me off than someone else. You know, someone who's bored by something, they might be able to focus for an extended period of time, even though it bores them because they've got this ability to focus. For me, I can't. If the moment someone, and you've seen this, you know, with anything, like the moment something starts, I literally, the moment something starts boring, 
boring me, I literally check out almost instantaneously. And so one of the things that I found really challenging was up until the age of 23, I'd never built an attention span because I'd never really learnt what an attention span was and how to develop it. And the way that we develop an attention span is by focusing on the things that we really enjoy. And as someone who's ADHD, I actually learned to develop an attention span that would challenge anyone who is of right mind non-ADHD at the highest level by actually focusing on the things that I enjoy. By focusing on things that I enjoy, not only do I have an attention span, but I can focus on things for three, four, five, six hours straight. You know, only really stopping to pee and in some cases running to the toilet and running straight back. Because for me, it's that hypersensitivity to boredom. It's about enrolling them in things that they're interested in, enrolling them in things that they're passionate about. And um, you know, the beautiful thing about ADHD is once they find what they're passionate about, once that they find they're interested in, they have these untapped amount of energy to be able to focus on these things and these things for extended periods of time. Uh, but life is like anything, whether you're ADHD or not. Sometimes we have to try a multitude of things. We have to experience a multitude of things before we actually find the flavors that we really enjoy. Baskin Robbins seems to be a theme that keeps on coming up. You know, and my advice is take him out there, show him life, show him experiences, expose him to things, expose him to experience, like give him exposure to the 52 different ice creams that are the flavors of life, of the different activities he can do. And uh, you know, he will stumble upon something and all of a sudden he will stumble upon that thing that he really loves and man, he will always treasure that and that'll be the gift that grandma gave him. So hopefully that helps. San Tahu on Facebook asks, San Tahu. <laughs> I hope that's right. Uh, when you're aware that overwhelm is approaching, how do you neutralize it? My habits aren't healthy. What habits do you do? Is exercise a go-to? Look, exercise is a great baseline go-to, but when I start feeling, when I know I'm getting overwhelmed, the first thing I do is I, I know what my baseline is. I know what my baseline is for feeling normal. And when I start feeling overwhelmed, which is a symptom of stress, okay, which has all sorts of biochemical responses as well, I get to the point where I'm going, okay, I'm now overwhelmed, but I'm now overwhelmed to a point where I'm feeling it's a little bit unhealthy. And once I reach that point where it's overwhelmed to a little bit unhealthy, that's when I step back, I walk away. There's a great book that you can read, it's called The Power of Full Engagement. It talks about the athlete model, and it talks about treating the business person or the any day person really, like the, like the athlete, and understanding that you know, if you wanna compete as a person at the highest level, there's gotta be a, a proportionate amount of time spent training, a proportionate amount of time spent um, competing, and a proportionate amount of time spent um, resting and recuperating. Now, what's interesting is when you look at the Olympic model, the Olympic model is, you know, they spend you know, literally like one to 2% of their time competing, they spend like maybe 20, 30% of their time training, and they spend this huge portion of their time actually resting and recuperating so that, they compete at their, so that they can compete at their best. But when you look at most business people, most business people or most human beings, we spend like you know, maybe 80% of our time competing in life. You know, maybe if we're lucky, 3% of the time you know, in training and the other percent of the time is in rest and recovery, which is a small fraction in comparison. And so for me, recovery is really important. And so when I start feeling levels of overwhelm, one of the first things I'll do if I'm starting to feel over, overwhelmed to a point where, and, and this is, you know, uh, we call this in, in firearms training, let's call it saturation. Like when you're doing fire, like special weapons and tactics training, when I was training with the SEALs or the special forces in Europe, you'd only train in most cases for a couple hours at a time before you reach what they called maximum saturation. And once you achieve maximum saturation, there was no, it didn't matter what you did, you, couldn't, you, couldn't put, you, you can't input any new skills because your brain is basically, your autonomic system is basically at, at its red line and you're done for the day. And so what would happen is you'd get to that point and then you'd just go away from the range. You'd go and defrag, I'd go and meditate, I'd go and eat, I'd go and relax, you know, basically do whatever I had to do, reset myself and come back. But for me, in order to 
prevent myself from achieving that point, I started off doing what I would call HIT training for overwhelm. And HIT is like an interval training. So I do 90 minutes of strenuous whatever I'm doing, 90 minutes of strenuous, uh, stressful, uh, and this is not about exercise, this is about stressful engagement. And then I'd have a 10 to 15 minute break. Go and rest and reset, get myself sorted, and then I'd come back in, 90 minutes of stressful occupation, Okay, hit the 90 minute mark, stop, go away, rest, recover, come back, and do the 90-10, 90-15, 90-10, 90-15. And what I found was, not only was I not hitting overwhelm to the point of maximum saturation, not only was I hitting it less, but I was actually conditioning myself to be able to deal with overwhelm a lot more effectively. So my exposure to overwhelm was actually becoming greater and greater and greater every time, not less and less and less and less. So overwhelm and stress was actually making me stronger and not actually weaker. So my, 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 my recommendation is don't see overwhelm as something that is negative, see it as a positive, it's a form of conditioning, overwhelm conditioning or stress conditioning, but expose yourself to it for extended periods of time, but once you reach that maximum saturation point where you start to become fried and useless, it's too late. You want to be preventing yourself getting to that point where you're fried and useless, stepping away, resting, recovering, distracting yourself, going, for the to going to the toilet, go for a walk, and then come back, resting, then come back, resting, then come back. And what you'll notice is your stress muscle over time will become stronger and you'll be able to deal with not only more overwhelm but more intense overwhelm for extended periods of time to the point where as now, I do very little 90-10. Like today, I have a literally a back-to-back -back day. So in here since uh, 9 a.m., whatever it is I've got here, and I'll leave here at 5.30 and I will literally be back-to-back -back the entire day and I'll leave here fresh as a berry. And the only reason I can do that is I've spent the last 20 years conditioning myself to be able to experience more and more and more exposure to levels of stress and overwhelm and you know intensity to the point where now you know I can cruise through a whole day and, and do that completely fine. Sometimes I can work you know solid for a good four, five, six weeks solid, only having one or two days off here and there before it really starts to impact me. Now a lot of people say, well that's not very healthy. Yeah, but some people say it's not very healthy to squat 280. But you know some people do it all day long. But they've trained up for years in most cases to the point where they can squat 280, okay? Whereas when I can work you know, five or six or seven weeks straight with only one or two days off, people go, well, that's unhealthy. Well, it's unhealthy if you've never done that before. But if you've been conditioning yourself for the last 20 years through exposure to be able to work for more and more intense periods of time with greater, greater levels of intensity and, and exposure to that stress, then it's actually not that difficult. But it is understanding where you start and building yourself up and realizing you can't go and squat 280 straight off cold, because if you do, you'll probably snap yourself in half. Okay, nor could someone come in and try and compete with me at a work rate because you'll probably fucking burn out. Because I did, I know when I tried to compete with others, I burned out like five times, hospitalized twice, before I learned the importance of conditioning and, then, and recovery and training myself to be able to deal with higher levels of stress. Hope that helps. Heather Bell on Facebook asks, I don't think there's any greater pain you can take than the pain you experience as a parent when something really horrible happens to your child. What are some of the tools that you use to lean into that pain, especially when sometimes that pain may not be all yours? I love, look, and this might sound strange. Um, I, okay, I'm gonna, I've got to temper this. I was about to say, I love it when Noah hurts himself. And I don't love it, but like whenever Noah hurts himself, I feel it, I hurt, I'm in pain. Like last night he was riding his bike around because uh, he's got a new bike and he won't stop fucking riding his bike. Like even you know, four o'clock this morning, Daddy, can I ride my bike? So anyway, last night it was like, I was doing the barbecue outside. It was like probably 12 degrees outside, right? And he's riding his bike outside without any shoes on. And I said, Noah, don't ride your bike without any shoes on because if you fall over and hurt your foot, it's gonna hurt a lot more. So what does he do? He rides his bike in, his, he pedals into the door and he jams his toe between the pedal and the door. And he's in pain. And I was in pain, so I felt his pain. But I literally said to him, once he calmed down, I was like, okay, so what did you learn from this? 
He goes, well, Daddy, I shouldn't ride my bike without shoes on. I said, well, that's a bloody good lesson. So for me, pain is what is required in order for someone to develop strength. And for me, as much as I feel pain when Noah feels pain, I know it's a part of the child process. I know it's a part of, you know, not just the childhood process, but it's a part of the neurological development that's required for children to be able to become resilient. Children who haven't experienced pain don't become resilient. Children who don't experience pain, in most cases, become quite soft and weak. Now for us, our goal is not to prevent them from experiencing pain. Our goal is to support them and nurturing them when they are in pain. Because by virtue of us being there to support them, nurture them, cuddle them, touch them when they're in pain, that is symbiotically, biologically, it's like a bio, uh, what is it, biosymbotically, it's actually teaching them how to regulate their emotions. It's teaching their blood how to flow into different parts of their brain so that they can regulate the stress and regulate the emotion that physical pain and mental pain bring up. So for me, pain is important for a child. Mental pain is important for a child. Physical pain is important for a child. And although I don't wish more pain on Noah, I do wish a level of pain on him. But what I do wish on him more than anything else is the abundance of skills when it comes to learning how to regulate. Now Noah's an, a little, an incredible little guy. He already knows how to regulate. So if he's in pain, okay, we've got a couple of things, like if he stubs his toe, he falls over. First thing we say, and his mum taught him this, is to say cancel that. So if he stubs his toe, you know, hits himself and he's like, ah, say, say cancel it. Like literally, we say cancel because we're, we're literally programming him to cancel the signal between the, 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 the limb and the brain. And then the second thing we do is I say, okay, buddy, don't forget to breathe. Regulate the pain, regulate the pain. The, the kid's four and a quarter and he knows how to, when I say regulate, he'll go, even when he's upset, like the kid's reciting our values at the moment. Like this kid's incredible. Now all children have the same potential. Children are nothing more than a puddle of potential, okay, that is amassed together in this little little body that can do incredible things. But for me, it's the most important role, I'm just gonna re, 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 uh, regurgitate what I've already said, is not preventing pain, okay? In some cases, you wanna be not protecting them from pain. You wanna be allowing them to experiencing pain. But the most important role of a parent is not to protect their child from pain. The most important role of a parent is to help them regulate through nurture when they are in pain. So when they're in pain, don't, because, and this is the thing, if a child hurts himself, if they're in physical pain or mental pain, and then you go, oh, oh God, oh, it's all right. You're not teaching them how to regulate. If anything, you're, you're teaching them how not to regulate, which will also channel their brain and help their brain develop in different ways. So when a child is in pain, it is in super, super critical important for the parent to be calm, for the parent to be by base neutral, for the parent to be present and be sitting there going, hey, it's okay. Hey, it's okay. So the parent, even though the parent wants to respond physically very strongly, we have to regulate ourselves. We have to keep ourselves neutral because that's what the kid's basing off. If the kid's in pain and then we're, and our, and our baseline is like, they're gonna go, well, if this is what happens, this is what we do. We freak out, we freak out, we freak out, we freak out. Whereas when a child's in pain, physical, mental, emotional pain, and we teach them how to, by doing that themselves, they go, oh, okay, well, dad's calm. I'm in pain, dad's calm. I'm in pain, dad's calm. I'm in pain, dad's calm. Okay, so I can be calm when I'm in pain. So we actually teach them how to become. Now this might go, oh, your kid can't be calm when it's in pain. No, no that, we teach them that that's the natural response. Because the response of regulation is not to not experience pain. The response of regulation is to experience less, less intensities and less durations of pain because we can regulate our ways out of it. Now the benefit of this is not only will their brain develop in more healthy ways, but the more healthy their brain develops, the less chance they have of 
all sorts of conditions, including you know things such as you know um, addiction, as a basically example. Because kids who don't do not learn how to regulate pain, mental, emotional, physical, you know, pain, they are the ones that become their brains develop in different ways that in many cases make them most susceptible to things like addiction and other sorts of process behaviours that will help regulate for them. So we want to teach the kids how to regulate biologically, not through external mechanisms. Hope that helps. That's it. Oh. 26? Yeah. That was awesome. That was episode 26 of the hashtag HeyKerwin Show. Any questions that you have, please post Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Snapchat, Twitter, uh, smoke signals, carrier pigeons. You can even do some skywriting if you want. Hashtag HeyKerwin. What are your biggest questions about anything? Life, love, spirituality, kids, parenting, uh, even business. We can talk a little, bit, a, bit of, a little bit about business from time to time as well. But the question of the day what has been the most mentally painful thing that you've ever gone through in your entire life? I'm really curious to know. Let me know below. What is the most mentally painful thing? And what I'd like you to do is if it brings up some pain, if it triggers some stuff for you as you're thinking about this right now, breathe through it, regulate through it, and see if you can actually see a different side by answering this question. Of this thing that created the biggest pain that you've ever experienced mentally in your life, answer this sub-question. What was the greatest benefit that you received? Keen to know. Until next time, say hi to your mum for me. Thanks for listening to Hey Kerwin. If you would like your questions answered, don't forget to use the hashtag Hey Kerwin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.